Hello and welcome listeners to another episode of the Brodacious Book Club. It's a podcast where we host a book club. Where I haven't read the book. This podcast is for those who don't have time to read, but still want to know what's up in the world of fiction. I'm your host, Matt Thomas, and with me is my good, good bro, the Sultan of Brotan, the brostest with the mostest, Aaron Rockford. Hi there. And as always, this podcast is an attempt to make books a little bit more accessible for those of you who don't have the time or the energy to read, but also is a a time where you can listen to us chat about books that maybe you have read. If I know what's up by the end of this, then you, Aaron, have done your job. And also, as always, this podcast is meant for entertainment purposes. We mean no disrespect to the authors or the books discussed. We just think we're funny. And with that, also, obviously, spoiler alert. There will be spoilers. We're going to be discussing major plot points in the books that we review. Yeah, I think that's a good verb. Fair enough. So if you are looking to avoid spoilers, then perhaps read the book first. Yes, and even if uh, you haven't read it already, we always encourage reading the books for yourself and getting them legally, like from the library uh, or buying them. That's right. Don't don't steal books. Don't steal books. Don't steal. It's bad. And with that, uh, we're off to the races. What are we reading today, Erin? So today we are reading The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jemisin. If you do know a little bit about the world of speculative fiction, you may recognize that name, N.K. Jemisin. She won the Hugo Award three years in a row for her Broken Earth trilogy. Three years in a row! Okay. (laughs) And you may be wondering why we're not reading that. Mm. And the answer is simple. It's just that I figured that the first book in the series... The fifth season would be a little bit difficult to summarize for Mm. the purposes of an audience. And if you've read the book, you probably know why that is. No spoilers. And we may revisit that one day, but not at the moment. Who knows? Anything's possible. But uh, but okay, all right. So when was this? Re- is this a uh, recent? So this book came out in 2010. It was actually nominated for Hugo the year it came out. Mm. And I, I picked it partially because it is sort of contemporaneous to the book we read last week, which was um, The Name of the Wind. And I think it would be interesting if we can have a little bit of a discussion about contrasts between the two. Of course, absolutely. Sounds good. Now, you say it's similar, so paint me a word picture here, Aaron. When does it take place? Where does it take place? What's the setting? Yeah, so um, just like The Name of the Wind, this is a high fantasy novel. It takes place entirely within a place called The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, and is actually a very insular book in a lot of ways. It takes place almost entirely in one location, which is the, the Palace of Sky, which is the capital of this world. I, I uh, personally have a special affection for forms of media that take place all in one location. <laughs> the, the Man from Earth, Twelve Angry Men, another mm. one. Uh, films, of course, not books, but uh, <laughs> but still excellent in their own right. Excited to see what this has in store for us. So... Who, who are the players here? Maybe you want to just get us started. Tell us a little bit about the story, the plot. Yeah, so the, the main character, her name is Yena Dar. She is basically the granddaughter of the ruler of the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms through his daughter, who was his heir and his favorite. And her mother ran away when she was a young adult in order to marry Yena's father. And it was this very romantic story that she grew up with about her, her mother leaving behind it all to be with her father, which we may complicate a little 
all throughout the story. She is, at the beginning of this story, 19 years old, and she has been called to the Palace of Sky. Both of her parents are now dead. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mysterious. Cryptic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm guessing we don't, we're not told why. How, how they died, or... We get a little bit of information. Her mother was poisoned. I'm not actually sure what her father died of, which I may have just forgotten to write down. Sure, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> when it came up. Both sort of under mildly suspicious circumstances, for right, sure. Right, So we're summoned to the palace, mm-hmm. and what for? What happens then? Yeah, well, you'll you'll have to see. I'll have to see. Okay, <laughs> good. And I, I just want to, before we really get into it, if you are at any point planning on reading this story, I just want to give a brief content warning that there is discussion of past sexual assault. We're probably not going to talk about it much just because it isn't super relevant to the story and that feels like a weird energy to bring in here, but I just wanted to give everyone the heads up if they do choose to read the book. Okay, so we've got a wayward adventure type, mm-hmm. the the main character. We've mm-hmm. got uh, the tragic death of both parents and we've got, uh, it, would it be accurate to characterize the uh, the ruler of the 100,000 kingdoms as the wise old man or is he more of a tyrant? Or? He's, he's more of a tyrant. He's he, I don't think he's ever referred to by the title of emperor, but mm. that's very much what his his job, because the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, as the name kind of implies, are a bunch of small nations and tribes that he rules over absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Wonderful. Well, I guess without giving too much of the plot away then, can mm. you tell us a little bit about the, the general arc? of the story, uh, the direction that it takes. Yeah, I think that's actually going to be a discussion for as we as we go along mm-hmm. because I think the, the book very much drops you in the middle of all of this right. and I think there's a little bit of figuring out what the arc is going to be mm-hmm. as you go along. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested to see if we come to the same conclusions about what, what the arc is. Okay, and with that... <laughs> we start with a cryptic narration. It's all told in first person, which also makes it a bit interesting because much of uh, The Name of the Wind is as well. Yeah, it is. We start with this bit of narration. I am not as I once was. They have done this to me, broken me open and torn out my heart. I do not know who I am anymore. I must try to remember. And then we get a break and we launch into her arriving at the Palace of Sky, which is floating. Sure. Hence the name, perhaps. Yeah. 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 I I think that's a pretty logical leap to make. Her her grandfather rules there. His name is Decarta. And we get some of this backstory about her mother and how she ran away. We also learn that everyone in the palace are part of the family, technically. Mm-hmm. The word that's used is Aramari, which means that they have a blood relation somehow mm. to Decarta, the emperor, in all but name. <laughs> but there's very few full bloods. Most of them are like half-bloods or less. Sure. They're, they're divided by blood for jobs, so like all of the servants are also technically part of the family. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So she's brought to see her grandfather, at which point she learns that she is going to be competing for the position of rightful heir, basically. Okay. So she has two cousins who are not as, like, she is obviously the direct granddaughter, mm. and they are they are only cousins. Right. But they've also grown up there. They know their ways. There's Semina and Rilad mm. are their names. They've grown up with this as their norm, whereas she's coming in from a, like, a much more rural, much more... 
humble. Humble. They they sort of dismiss her as like a barbarian. Right. Because she didn't grow up in this palace. Now, it's interesting that you use the word barbarian there. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a little curious just for the purposes of contextualization yeah. and perhaps it's purposefully vague in this respect and you won't be able to answer the question, <laughs> but in terms of empire, are we talking more Holy Roman or Empire of China? Is this more Eastern or Western? Do we know? It's kind of neither. I would say it, it maybe resembles the Roman Empire mm-hmm. a little bit more in terms of like vastly different and Roman Empire at like its peak mm-hmm. where there are vastly different groups of people who are all technically ruled by the emperor. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Yeah, and it's worth noting she she looks different like her skin is darker than most of the people in sky mm. so she's like physically set apart as well mm-hmm. we also get to learn a little bit about the mythology and the magic system right. uh, which is basically that magic comes from the gods and there's three well there were three gods Ooh, okay <laughs> there was itempas mm. who was the god of the day there was nahadoth who was the god of the night and then anepha who was the goddess of twilight and like life and death and balance and according to their religion itempas killed anepha and overthrew nahadoth and emerged as the leader not even leader like the only god <laughs> right and he gives legitimacy to the ruler of the hundred thousand kingdoms I see. Okay. There's other sort of minor gods as well, but those are the the three important ones. Mm -hmm. All the others are like their children, basically. As she arrives, she also learns that the other gods are still around, but they're actually, they've all been enslaved to her family, basically. Wow. They've all been forced to live in the palace and forced to obey the commands of the family members. Mm. So in, in her first day, she meets her grandfather and learns that she's going to be competing for air, kind of whether or not she likes it and they immediately rush her off and it's a whole thing to like get her to the the sort of palace magician mm. in order for her to be marked as Aramary because if she's not marked as a member of the family she could be preyed upon by any of the gods because mm. they're they're under command to not hurt anyone who is marked but anyone who isn't could be in danger mm-hmm. so she she befriends one of the servants uh, his name is Tavril he's he's technically family of hers but like distantly and he's a half so he's just a regular servant. Right. As he's rushing her through the halls to get to the palace magician, she runs into Semina, who is one of her rivals. And Semina is there with Nahadoth, the, the night lord. Mm-hmm. And it's about to be twilight, at which point he will, like once the sun has set, he assumes all of his powers. And she tries to sick him on Yena, our main character. And Tavril is basically just like, run. And so she tries. She's helped by... One one of the other godlings who appears as a child. His name is C.A. He used to be the trickster god. Okay, this was the children of one of the, yes. the three. Okay. Yes. Nahadoth ends up catching up to her and she stabs him, which is not super effective given that he is a god. No. But somehow that, like, helps him come back to himself. And before he passes out, he kisses her. And she's a little bit like, hmm. Odd. That was weird. Gods are weird. Yeah. So. (laughs) But then when he wakes up again from having been stabbed, he's kind of regained his mind. Right. And he's no longer a danger to her. So the godlings give her a special mark to kind of go underneath the official mark. Because the, the one that everyone is officially given is also a way for the emperor to control them. 
Mm. So she doesn't have to obey his commands necessarily. Okay. okay. Now, quick question. Yes. Uh, is magic something that is very common in this no, world? No, it's okay. extremely uncommon. Like, it right. is pretty much only done through the will of the gods. Mm-hmm. So there is, like, the the family members, so, like, Semina and the emperor and Yena could command the gods to do things for them. Mm. And that's kind of how they do magic. And I then see. there's also Virain, who is the palace magician. Mm. And he is the only person who has magic. Like, it still comes from the gods. Like, I think it comes specifically from Itempus. But... He can't do a ton of things with it. Okay. And again, it's only by the blessing of the gods, I right, guess. Right, Yaina starts to get into her life, her new life. She starts to get used to how things are in the palace as much as you can get used to a world in which you are a complete foreigner and everyone is kind of out to get you. Sie, mm-hmm. who is the child trickster god, he wants to spend a lot of time with her and proposes an alliance. There's two other godlings who are around and part of this alliance. There's um, Jacarn who is the goddess of battle and Kurue who is the goddess of wisdom and she's trying to figure out basically how to protect the place she grew up the nation the tribe she grew up in Mm -hmm. but also not die in the Mm -hmm. middle of this conflict between the cousins and there's this sort of uncomfortable position that exists between her and the gods because she doesn't want to use them but they're also godly and unknowing but also if she orders them to do anything they have to do it Mm -hmm. and Nahadoth kind of calls her out for it and she she promises not to command them to do anything, but it's still this uncomfortable... Tension. Yeah, yeah. tension. And Virain, who's the court magician, he tells her to stay away from them and not to care about the gods because he can tell that she's bonding with them. Mm-hmm. Now, another quick question. Yeah. The, the godlings that are a part of the court, mm-hmm. as well as the two, let's call them primary gods, yeah. uh, major gods, are those the only gods? Are there more godlings out in the wild? It's it's kind of implied that there might be more godlings out in the wild, mm-hmm. but these are the ones that the story concerns itself with. Okay. okay. The other ones don't really have a oh, part in sure. the story. Sure, sure, sure. And there's there's two sequels to this book. I haven't mm-hmm. read either of them, mm-hmm. and so they might explore that more. Mm-hmm. I don't know at this time. Right, fair. <laughs> she finally ends up meeting Rilad, who's the other rival. He warns her that she shouldn't love anything, because whatever she loves, Semina will use it to get to her. Hmm. And she's like, well, I don't really, you know, my parents are dead. I don't have anyone I care about. Right. But then she realizes that she cares about her tribe and her land still. Mm-hmm. So that's her obvious weakness. Weakness. Dakarta, her grandfather, kills a man in front of her to try and test her. Right. And ends up sort of deciding that she's weak. Mm. And she ends up having to come to terms with the fact that her mother was cruel and vicious at times right. and fit in with the palace lifestyle. And of course, the mother that she knew was kind and gentle and loving mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but that she had a life before that. She also gets some information about Anefa, the goddess who died, and right. how uh, she was poisoned by a tempest. And also the the three gods, the main three, um, were all lovers at different times, like with this very polyamorous triangle Indeed, happening. Yeah. Again, gods be- <laughs> Gods. gods be Doing gods. God things. And they, they refer to each other as like brother and sister. Good stuff. Any any mythology system does that thing. That's right. So I think that's not really something to read too much into. Also, Yena is like kind of into it mm-hmm. and like kind of into Nahadoth. She's like, oh, I'm, I am I like this idea of controlling him, but also he's terrifying and this extremely volatile god, god being. God of darkness, indeed. Yeah. yeah. And also, I guess, sensing this in her, Varane, the, the power 
Dallas magician, is like, just so you know, if you have sex with Nahadoth, you will die. Like, it will kill you. Mortals cannot have sex with gods. This is not a thing. And he also tells her about how, at one point, her mother came back to Sky, and she has no, no knowledge of this, and it was to try and save her father, because her, her dad became really sick at one point with this disease that's normally not curable, but it didn't kill him. Okay. Um, so she starts to kind of wonder, like, what did her mother do when she came back? How did that tie into her dad's, mm-hmm. like, miraculous recovery? And she comes to the realization that her grandfather would have turned her mother away, but she would also have had an opportunity to meet with the gods, and perhaps they were the ones who helped her father. Mm-hmm. So she learns kind of accidentally that she looks very similar to Anefa, the, the goddess who was killed. And when she realizes that, the knowledge overwhelms her and she passes out and almost dies. Right. And when she wakes up and the gods are all kind of standing around her, she's like, what's happening? What's going on? Yeah, something's up <laughs> um, here. So they eventually explain to her that her mother agreed to offer her up to the gods to put the remnants of Anefa's soul into her. Mm. in exchange for saving her dad. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The gods make sure to mention that it's two different souls occupying the same body. Okay. Kind of like a Harry Voldemort type thing. It is. It is. There's this interesting piece of duality in the story because Nahadoth is also someone completely different by day and by night. He has a mortal personality. Is someone completely different during the day and then he's a god at night. Mm -hmm. And Samina also kind of uses him as a sex slave when he's in his mortal form. Mm. That's not important. It's interesting because he's described as being change incarnate and he's locked into the form that he currently possesses, which can shift a little bit. Mm. And it's explained that his form sort of changes based on what people expect him to be, but only a certain amount Mm -hmm. because normally he is a a being that is fluid in terms of gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. he was Itempus's lover, but also Anefa's lover Mm -hmm. and takes feminine and masculine forms, which is kind of interesting. Super interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. You said this was written in 2013. 2010. 2010. Is okay. when this came out. Yeah. Very, interesting. Very ahead of the curve. Very ahead of the curve. <laughs> now, another quick question here about the the rivals. How would you describe the nature of their relationship with our hero, with our protagonist? More yeah. just come straight antagonistic or... Samina's relationship is straight antagonistic. She sure. is driven, ambitious. She wants to become the next head of the family. Right. And is sort of willing to do anything she can to get there. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rolod is more kind of resigned to whatever fate he meets. Like, Mm -hmm. he's frequently drunk, he's Hmm. just trying to get by. The two of them have peace with each other and have, like, grown up. Like, their brother and sister have grown up together. But it's also, like, without question, Samina would overthrow her brother. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's more relaxed towards Yena. He doesn't care as much what she's doing because he yeah. also doesn't care as much what he does. Well, if he gives her tips, he, right? yeah. yeah. And it's mostly a tip of, like, how to survive because he's just kind of resigned to the world in which his sister is going to beat him and become the next head of the family. Mm-hmm. Yena learns that the remnants of Anefa's power could be used to free the gods who are currently enslaved, which obviously the gods are interested in. Mm-hmm. 
And the power is contained within this thing called the Stone of Earth. It's within the palace. Sure. And it's used actually to transfer the head of the family, Mark, which is the one that gives Descartes a power over everyone else, from him to his successor. Okay. So it's used anytime power passes, which obviously doesn't happen that often. Right. But it's going to be used soon because that's coming up. She also learns that one person has to hold the stone mm. and make the transfer from person to person and the moment of holding the stone is too powerful for humans so it kills whoever is holding it okay. and she realizes that that's why she has been brought is to be the one who holds it and dies mm. but she has Anefa's soul within her as well so there's a possibility that she could use it to free the godlings it would still kill her mm. but she could use it to do something good right so that's her opportunity then during this coronation yeah perhaps? pretty much pretty much and she she also finds out that Semina has gathered the kingdoms that she controls and has set them to war against Yena's homeland. Ah, very good, yes. <laughs> Saw that one coming. Yeah, just a bit. And the gods promise her that if she sets them free, they will protect her homeland. Mm-hmm. And also they're going to wage war against the Tempest. And I don't know if those two objectives completely go together, <laughs> but I that's mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. Some of your priorities, some of ours, right? Yeah. At the oh. end of the day, gods be gods. Yeah, uh, gods be gods and gods be vengeful. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Nahadoth also tries to remove the two souls. He tries to separate them and to take Anefa's soul back. Sure. Because he isn't happy with the way things are. But they're too entwined. To no avail. Again, yeah. saw that coming, fair enough. Yeah. You begin to notice as you're reading, there's all these narrative asides where, for all intents and purposes, the protagonist is talking to herself. Mm-hmm. But it becomes clear that it's actually... Oh, that's brilliant. A two-way conversation between her soul and Anefa's. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that must have been a pleasure to read. It's it's a really fun reveal when you get yeah. to it, to realize that it's it's them talking to each other. Mm-hmm. The conversations are not always nice or civil, but they're interesting. Mm-hmm. Nahadoth ends up taking Yena to her homeland to speak with her grandmother. Mm-hmm. She needs to know if her grandmother knew anything about the deal sure. To, sure. To, to put a goddess's soul inside of her. Right. Her grandmother didn't, but there's sort of a back and forth where she's like, is her soul going to consume mine? Is like, what's going to happen here? And Nahadoth is basically like, who knows? This has never been done before. And she smacks him. Good stuff. And then there's a bit of a weird moment where he puts like a finger to her lips and she gets a taste of it and is into it. And it's like, girl, your grandma is standing right there. Super weird. Super weird. But I mean, fair enough. Yeah. She's 19. (laughs) So there's a bit of an aside where Tivril, who's the servant that she was befriended. Yes. um, He takes her to a a low blood party to kind of hang out and she ends up having some fun there and then she and Tavril end up sleeping together. Oh, saw that coming. Yeah. Again, also. (laughs) Um, I wasn't going to ask when you mentioned, but but you made sure to mention when you're saying that they were related, (laughs) that they were distantly related. Distantly related. Saw that coming a mile away. But like it's it's super chill. Like they're more friends than they are anything else, but they end up sleeping together. She also in the night calls out to Nahadoth, ends up kissing him. Okay. She tries to get Virain to send a message secretly to her grandmother. He turns her down after she realizes that one of the things that he is in charge of doing for the palace is taking low 
lowbloods and making them into monsters for entertainment purposes for the highbloods. Hmm. As you do. As you do. As you do. Yeah. I feel like there's probably some not super subtle metaphors happening mm-hmm. in the story. Mm-hmm. So instead she goes to Nahadoth and asks him. But instead of just sending a message, he takes her to meet with the leaders of the kingdoms that are attacking her homeland. And she tries to get them to capitulate and they don't. So she gets Nahadoth to turn them to stone. Fair enough. God's be vengeful. God's <laughs> yeah, be God's vengeful. be vengeful. Yeah. And also people be vengeful. That's right. Which does successfully stop them from invading her homeland. So it was not was not all a loss. Yeah. Not for me to say. Yeah. Afterwards, when they get back to the palace, she does cry and he comforts her. Just just like hugging her. Sure. Not with anything else. Indeed. I should hope not. Samina finds out that she has kind of screwed with her plans and she ends up torturing Sie who is the child god who's I mean Mm -hmm. he's not a child because he's a god but he appears as a child yeah and and is very childish in general like he's He's often yeah and he is often turning to Yena for comfort because Anefa the soul that she houses was his mother ah Okay, I see. Yeah. So he has he has some and, and also just they, they build a relationship together yeah, as well, yeah. but that's part of it. So Samina is torturing CA and Nahadoth takes his place instead, so then she's torturing him in an attempt to basically get revenge on Yena. Mm-hmm. Yena eventually gets her to stop the torture, though Samina is still like, Well, but I'm still gonna take over your homeland and enslave your people mm. and Yena like smacks her across the floor. Nice. And it's great. Yeah. With the fist of a vengeful god. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the the night of the coronation, there's going to also be a ball, and Virane comes to invite her and say, "Oh, let me be your escort." And also in this conversation, tells her that her mother was his first lover, which is an interesting tactic when you're yeah. asking a girl out. Yeah, super interesting. <laughs> okay, and, and sorry, just forgive me again. This is the court magician. Yes, this right. is the court magician. She also finds out that the thing that probably turned her mother against her grandfather was finding out that Decarta murdered his own wife as part of the succession ceremony. Ah, he held the stone? Yeah, she was the one who held the stone. So that was probably as much of a part of her mother turning away as it was falling in love with her father. Right, of course. And she also realizes that the only person who could possibly have sent the illness to her land, because it's kind of a magical based illness, which almost killed her father, could only have been sent by Virain, and that she thinks it was revenge. I see. Mm -hmm. So she's probably not gonna accept his yeah, she's there, not super yeah. into that. Tavril also comes and offers to escort her. Um, she turns him down, but like very lovingly of like, I, I just need to do this by myself. Sure. It's very sweet. She also walks in on Varane crying in his office by himself and is just kind of like, not going to deal with this today. <laughs> Walks back out. Again, as you do, <laughs> crying in your office by yourself. That's... <laughs> Yeah. Oddly familiar. Yeah. She goes to Samina and requests Nahadoth from her as like a pet. And Samina is kind of like, well, yeah, go ahead and have him for the day or so you still have left to live. Right. And the mortal form of him is like, I know you're into my godly form. Please don't make me wake up next to a corpse again because that's happened too many times. (laughs) And she doesn't do anything with him when he's mortal because he's kind of a different person. But then when he becomes his godly self, they do end up sleeping together. And let me guess, she doesn't die. She doesn't die. Because she's got which is goddess great. in her. Yeah. yeah. And also he is able to like hold himself back enough. And she trusts him to do that as well. Right. But she's also kind of has this view of like, well, if I die, I die. Like, I guess this is just going to happen. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
sometimes you just gotta smash. You know, uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> sometimes it's worth it. Yeah. But. So she and Rilad end up making a bit of an alliance. Sure. And they go to the ball, then they move on to the ritual and the big succession ceremony. She confronts Dakarta and is like, my mother still loved you, you were still her dad, and why did you kill her? And he's like, I didn't kill her. Like, he's just as surprised by this accusation and reveals that he brought her to Sky initially because he thought maybe she killed her own mother. Mm, so they've both, they've both been kind of like sizing each other up a little bit. And she immediately suspects that Varane must have also killed her say, mother. obviously, but... <laughs> but they don't really have time to accuse him, so we, we blow on past to the succession ceremony. She goes to take the stone, mm. which is the remainder of Anefa's power. Right. But before she can touch it, Varane stabs her in the back. Oh, okay. <laughs> she dies, basically, but she becomes sort of disembodied, and so she can still see what's happening in the room, even mm-hmm. though she can also see her own corpse, corpse bleeding out in the middle of the room. While she's in this disembodied state, she hears the conversation that happens after Varane stabs her, which is that the gods were betrayed by uh, Kurue, the goddess of wisdom, because she thought that by betraying their plan, she could get in good with Tempest again. Mm, most unwise. Like, yeah, to her that seemed like the most wise choice. Mm. And she didn't want to rely on a mortal right. to help them. There's also the reveal that Kurue killed her mother oh, and my. was the one organizing that. Which is, okay, yeah. yeah, you're gonna have to explain that. Bit of a plot twist. I think partially to bring Anefa's soul to Sky so that it could be destroyed for good. I see, okay. We also get the reveal at the same time that Virain has been holding a tempest. He's been the host body for the, the main god this whole time. Wow, well, okay. Not this whole time, ever since Yena's mother left. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was so angry and hurt by that that he appealed to a tempest and ended up with a god in him. So there's a lot of that happening. So Tempest reveals himself and mentions that, you know, he wants to destroy Anefa forever and whatever is left of her. In the meantime, Nahadoth speaks up for Yena and says that she was more than just a vessel for Anefa's spirit, revealing that there's some real emotion there beyond just like, hey, you have my dead lover's soul in you, which I'm sure is a complicated emotional place. No kidding. Instead of, hey, you have my dead lover's (laughs) soul in you, it's, hey, you have my dead lover's soul in you. And also... I'm kind of attracted to you as well. Yeah, so, which more complicated? Indeed, 100%. As, a, as an emotion. I mean, I've never yeah. been in that position. Me either, but just imagine the dissonance, <laughs> right? The, yeah. The so, guilt. So Nahadoth and Atempas go at each other fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Important clarification. Right. And the other godlings join in the fight as well. And as that's happening, Samina just pulls out a knife and like goes at Rilad because I guess we just might as well. Might as well. Have complete carnage. So while this is happening, Yena realizes that she's still around mm. and she has a bit of a conversation with Anefa and ends up being able to bring herself back to life, basically, but with Anefa's full power. Oh. They kind of combine souls and they combine the power because the stone that had Anefa's power like fell in Yena's blood sure. in the chaos. Okay. So they kind of merge into one, but it's Yena's soul and personality that ends up taking over. Anefa's maybe still there a little bit, but 
she doesn't just become Anefa, she becomes herself but God. Mm-hmm. And she's almost on another level of existence. Like she only gradually recognizes the other people in the room as who they are. But she has all this power. She frees the godlings and she stops Itempas and Nahadoth from fighting. She's like, this realm is not going to survive another war, so I'm not going to let you. Because mm-hmm. Nahadoth wants to kill Itempas as revenge for having enslaved Everything. them. Yeah. And also killed Anefa. But she's like, no, the world needs all three of us. It needs three main gods or else it'll cease to function, which has already happened. Mm-hmm. We need to keep the three. But they still need to do something about Itempus. So she and Nahadoth combine their powers and they make him serve the world and sort of walk amongst them as not completely mortal, but he doesn't really have access to his powers. He just has to help people. Right. And she also adds that his sentence can end early if he learns to love truly once again, which is a bit of an odd it is. Fairy tale moment. Indeed, to throw I was going to say, very Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And Nahadoth doesn't think that a Tempest can change, but it's clear that a Tempest still has a lot of emotions, especially towards Nahadoth, because the two of them predated Anefa mm-hmm. and like fought and then were lovers and then everything got bad. But Yaina still believes that he can change and that there is possibility for him to return to them. And she kisses him as a promise that, like, when he's earned it, she will forgive him and also thinks that Nahadoth probably will as well. Mm-hmm. So they have this awkward conversation about are you Anefa? Are you Yena? What's happening? Mm. Especially with CA who is like, are you my mom now? <laughs> 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 are you my mother? Exactly. Literally, And she's though. like, no. And he's like, that's okay. Like, I still love you anyway. So it's it's a cute little yeah, reunion. Right. She kills Karue for betraying them. Fair. Yeah. Honestly, again, <laughs> most unwise. Should yeah. have seen that coming. So Samina has succeeded in killing Ralad during the chaos. I see. But she gives her cousin to Nahadoth as revenge, I guess. Tell me the drunk <laughs> becomes emperor. No, no, he oh, died. That's, oh, oh, well. Yeah. So so good. I know. Oh, and she also separates out Nahadoth's mortal daytime self sure. into his own person. Okay. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. So he can go live his own life because his life is kind of sucked up till now. And her grandfather, who is still alive in the middle of all this, she addresses him and he thinks that everything is going to be chaos because she tells him that the gods are going to leave the world. They're going to stop dealing with humans and being slaves to humans. And Descartes like, this is going to be terrible. And she's like, it, I mean, it can't be worse than it is now. She also puts Tavril in charge as Descartes' heir. That's so there's, nice. Yeah, so there's some nice like equality. Yeah. And then the story ends with her and Nahadoth basically leaving to go and explore what godhood is going to look like for her. That's glorious. What, a, yeah. what an ending. Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, first of all, I'll launch into my response by saying, I think I like it more than Name of the Wind. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So do I, to be, yeah, yeah, this, you know, honest. And and to be honest, who knows? Maybe I like it more because you liked it more yeah. and that was translated through your retelling. That's yeah. always possible. But I, I feel like the protagonist was a little bit more likable. <laughs> yeah. And that's saying quite a lot because she becomes a god, she right? She does become and, a god And that's not a likable characteristic, yeah. right? All-powerful is not really something that you associate with likable characters. It's, it's at least not relatable. Yeah, like, no kidding. No kidding. And yet, again, somehow I found her more relatable than the last protagonist. Yeah, so interesting. I just wanted to make that note. And also I feel like it was a bit more structured. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in the, and I don't know if you want to speak to that since you actually mm-hmm. read them both and you experienced yeah. 
experienced the structure firsthand. But it sounds like there was more of a linear story here. There was more of an arc. You want yeah. we wanted to discuss the arc and we can come back to that. Mm-hmm. But whereas with Name of the Wind, it was kind of all over the place. Name of the Wind is very episodic, Indeed. I think. Whereas this is a very clear, like the story has a beginning, middle, and end, mm-hmm. and you can pinpoint when all of those happen. Sure. And you know what? Call me old fashioned, but I kind of like that. I yeah. kind of like the solid narrative with the beginning, middle, and end. But anyway, I digress. I also wanted to ask you some of the themes explored mm-hmm. in this in this novel: the empire, subjugation, yeah. uh, inequality. What do you think the allegory is here? What are they hinting at? Are yeah. they hinting at anything? Like, I think the story is definitely allegorical, and I would say that like N.K. Jemisin probably meant for it to be. Her works are usually pretty socially aware. Mm-hmm. She is herself a black woman, mm-hmm. which is maybe an important piece of context. I don't know if she's specifically saying anything about anything specific in terms of events, but there's definitely, I mean, there's a pretty obvious class issue to look at. There's mm-hmm. a pretty obvious imperial issue to mm-hmm. look at. Like I mentioned, I think close to the beginning, Yena is a different ethnicity than most of the other people in Sky. Indeed. You mentioned that you had a couple questions for me. You know, general discussion general questions. General discussion questions. I tried to present this as much as possible that the book is very, it just kind of comes at you and just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And you're never really given, or at least I never felt like I had a strong footing. It was always kind of throwing me for a bit of a loop, mm-hmm. which I think is Yena's experience. In, I, I was just about to say, in, that's that's definitely got to be intentional, Yeah, right? Yeah, like she's in a completely unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people who are actively trying to kill her. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about the way the story progressed? Did it feel like a natural progression to you of events? And particularly when it comes to the ending, like the main character becomes a god at the end, which is kind of unusual. Like, how do you feel about that as maybe not a reader, but an audience mm-hmm. member? Right. Well, usually, and and we mentioned this earlier, usually I wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. Having your protagonist become an all-powerful godlike yeah. being. First of all, I don't like it when the protagonists come back from the dead yeah. as a general rule. And she not only did that, but she came back from the dead with godlike abilities. Yeah. And then using those godlike abilities fixed everything, mm-hmm. tied it up neatly in a little bow. I can understand why that might be off-putting to some people and why it may seem like almost a cop-out, but to me it didn't, and I think it's because of the brilliant way in which the story was told. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an example, the inner dialogue that you realize yeah. is actually, I guess it, technically it is an inner dialogue, yeah. but it's an inner dialogue between two individuals, yeah. right? That was brilliant. Mm-hmm. The fact that, as you said, the story just keeps happening relentlessly to you. You don't have a second to catch your breath. Mm -hmm. Prime example of that is when I asked if the drunk became king and you said, (laughs) no, he died. I had no idea, right? Because it just keeps going. It doesn't let up. And I think that is supposed to mirror the protagonist's experience. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the way that they tied it up. I think it's a satisfying Mm -hmm. ending for everyone. Maybe not the the god of day, but, uh, (laughs) but, you know, justice was served and he has a chance Mm -hmm. to redeem himself. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think it's interesting a little bit how the book kind of rides that line a little bit between like, and part of this is, this is how mythology works a lot of the time, where gods don't face consequences. Mm-hmm. It's understandable, you know, if you look at Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, Norse mythology, where the gods do things to each other and then everything's just kind of okay mm-hmm. afterwards. Like maybe they keep their grudges, but very rarely does a god kill another god and it's permanent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting looking at, you know, maybe this is just me thinking too much into questions around redemption arcs, which mm-hmm. I feel like is a very hot topic at the moment. Indeed. That Itempus does get a punishment, he does get a consequence, but also it's not a permanent one. He has a chance to redeem himself. And like I said, I haven't read any of the other books yet, mm-hmm. so I don't know if that is a focus, I don't know if that happens, but... Well, that's just it. I'm very curious to... I mean, if you don't, then maybe I will read the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to see where this goes. I want yeah. to know if the God of Night becomes Change Incarnate again. Mm-hmm. If he's able to constantly shift or if he's... if he's, I, I just I won't know what happens next, yeah. right? There is a sweet moment where when she becomes a goddess, she's able to see all of his faces. One of the other questions that I was wondering was if you had to put a name to the Ark, because I, I said we would come back to that. Mm-hmm. Is there an arc that this fits into like what would you say is mm-hmm. the arc being explored mm-hmm. that's a very good question and you may agree with me you may mm-hmm. not but to me this sounds like a coming of age story <laughs> it is in a way yeah. yeah it sounds like our main character is she goes off to get answers and revenge for her her parents death and and rise to the occasion and realize that she's in peril and mm-hmm. does everything that she can to avoid that and yeah. kind of becomes the woman that she is well i guess the goddess that she is <laughs> by the end of it because of all of the the strife that she had yeah. to endure throughout the book i think it's uh, brilliantly done yeah. what about you are yeah, you... well, and you and you mentioned allegory earlier. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's allegory in, and again, maybe this is me reading too much into this, but of her literally embracing the goddess within, is that a sort of self-discovery? Ooh, <laughs> hadn't considered that angle, but there you go. That's exactly, that's... You say you're reading too much into it. That's exactly <laughs> your job, right? We're trying to do analysis here. It's true. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I think that you're definitely on to something. And to what extent is this a romance? I was fighting this earlier too. I was like, no, stop it, put it down. You know, there are definitely elements of romance in the story. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not a focus, which is Mm -hmm. great. And maybe not in the traditional way that a romantic subplot would be conveyed Mm -hmm. in a high fantasy novel like this. I think a lot of the romance, forgive me for this, is (laughs) is self-romance. It's self-love, you know? She's, She's learning to, as you say, embrace herself and embrace the goddess within. And and in doing so, she she does fall for this god of night and and has a happily ever after with him. But I feel as though the happily ever after with him is not dependent on him, and that he's yes. more just kind of there as an ancillary mm. support, yeah. teaching you how to god kind <laughs> of function. Yeah, and there's the implication is definitely that the most happy version of this ending is that a tempest will rejoin them and they will be a happy triad again. Indeed. Which is kind of interesting. Indeed, yeah. There's potentially a, I don't know if it's a critique, but to be leveled of Nahadoth is very literally a dark brooding hero. And they they address this within the story that she is like, am I attracted to him because he's dangerous? (laughs) Like literally the bad boy. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) 
But uh, in terms of romance, I also uh, I think we can't not acknowledge the mm-hmm. fact that there is definitely a bit of a perhaps former love triangle mm-hmm. type of thing going on there, right? Yeah. It's not even necessarily a one-way street. When the, the god of day is about to walk off and experience his punishment, she mm-hmm. kisses him yeah. as a symbol that the two of them will... Fr- that doesn't, you know, that's not exactly... <laughs> if someone kissed me, that that wouldn't be to me a symbol that you're going to forgive me one day. Yeah. That, that seems like a very godly method of communication, yeah. a little... And that's what I mean. Yeah. There's, there's a, there are romantic elements, but it's not a human romance, yes. you know? It's kind of yes. beyond mortal romance, yes. is I think what I I'm trying agree. to get to. Yeah, and um, I blew past this a little bit, or didn't mention it because it isn't really all that relevant, but there's a scene, too, where C.A. kisses her, the, the child trickster god, and it's not romantic, but it's still there, and mm. there's maybe, you know, a thread to be pulled about these different kisses with these different gods and how it means different things. 100%. I mean, uh, you, as a writer yourself, are yeah, we admit- Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> My dirty secret. <laughs> right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You, as a writer yourself, yeah. you have often told me writers don't put things in books unless it's there for a reason. Yeah. Typically. Good Sometimes. writers. Good writers. <laughs> If you will. Yeah. You know, they don't just toss things in willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Uh, books go through so many levels of revision and mm-hmm. editing. And if they did include everything that they want, it would be a 700-page book. And then we'd yeah. be reviewing the Name of the, the Wind, Wind again. again. <laughs> but point is, they don't put things in books unless it serves a function. Yeah. Whether that function is clear or whether it's mm-hmm. a little more vague. And mm-hmm. this, I think, falls into the vague category. Yes. But it definitely... You hit the nail on the head when you said there's a thread to be pulled there. Yeah, and my last question is, and maybe this is to link up a little bit with this comparison we've been making with The Name of the Wind because they were both fantasy novels coming out within a year of each other. In what way does this stack up as a fantasy novel? Like, it's in many ways very different. Mm-hmm. Well, first I'll give my preference. Again, <laughs> as, as a someone who enjoys fantasy, I like the real high fantasy, high power mm-hmm. intrigue in a magical medieval setting, if mm-hmm. you will. And this this did it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Name of the Wind, not really so much. It mm-hmm. was more, as you said, episodic. It was more focused on mm-hmm. the the tales of one supposedly epic protagonist. Yeah. Now, if we're talking empirically or academically, which one do I think is a better piece of fiction? Mm-hmm. Well, now I actually have to think about my answer <laughs> there, and I'm not really sure because which one is a better work of high fantasy empirically, academically? Probably the name of the wind just in that the setting the the characters the fact that a lot of the characters fall into pre-established fantasy tropes Mm -hmm. the hero's journey story is more indicative of your classic high fantasy probably me as no expert that's what i'm (laughs) going to say on that however that does beg the question do tropes and arcs make good high fantasy is it good because it follows all of the rules if you will of high fantasy is does high fantasy have to follow all those rules in order to be good i don't think so and i think that uh, the hundred thousand kingdoms is a prime example of that in that it doesn't necessarily follow as closely a lot of the tropes and arcs that are indicative of classical fantasy but it is still excellent i would 
agree. I agree. And I'm hoping that we can look at a lot of the more unusual fantasy and sci-fi books, especially that have come out in more recent years, in this podcast mm-hmm. as we go forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's it's maybe even a little more. I don't want to say dangerous because I feel like that's <laughs> that's too pr- provocative. But you know, it's it's it takes I like it. it takes more risk, and yes. and I can really appreciate that. I think those mm. risks really paid off. Yeah, and with that, I think concludes our discussion on the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jemison. Next time, we are going to be taking a bit of a divergence into the world of science fiction, and we're going to be talking about Wanderers by Chuck Wendig, which, for those wanting to read along at home, might strike some chords for the uh, the world we're currently living in. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to, you know, like and subscribe, drop a comment below, yada yada, all that jazz. I'm Aaron Rockford. You can find me at Pineapple Fury on Twitter. And I'm Matt Thomas, and you cannot reach me. And this has been the Brodacious Book Club. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time.